here on the Essential Cast. Josh is from Argolia. He's here to talk to me about Burning Man and developer relations, developer advocacy. We're going to get into some great stuff around there. Um, I met Josh actually at my old apartment and I saw him walking out of the, uh, the building and he had a, a pretty tricked out bike and I recognized that as a, as a playa ride and figured he'd be a, a cool guy to start talking to. And, uh, we hit it off and we've been, uh, friends ever since. And he just, uh, went to the burn. How was, uh, how are you doing? And are you, uh, recovering from the recovered from the burn yet? I think so. Thanks, Adam. I, uh, just yesterday cleaned off everything that I had brought back from the playa. You know, you, you get back and a week or two passes and you just, there's, there's something about the existential part where you know that once you actually clean all of your stuff and put it away, that that year's Burning Man is officially done and concluded and over. So leaving things sitting there dusty in my apartment has been a little bit of a ritual over the past few years. And then I have to bring myself emotionally to start that cleanup, uh, that above and beyond just, you know, who wants to, um, spend their entire Friday afternoon or Saturday afternoon cleaning stuff up, but it's finally done. It's finally over. And now I, I feel great just having a clean apartment again. Nice. You might find some dust in some, uh, some more locations. Still. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it never goes away. <laughs> yes. It never goes away. Pro yeah. tip, use vinegar. It vinegar. helps. Other yes. than that, no, there, there's always a little trace. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for joining me. Um, want to get a little bit into your, your background and how you got into, uh, into tech. Yeah. You know, I did computer science in college at the University of Illinois, but what really got me into uh, the idea of, of programming and building things, building websites for a living was a job that I had when I was there. I worked on the UIUC.edu homepage, campus maps, campus calendar. It was a job that I had found actually through the classified ads. Um, and it was a university office that was offering uh, this work. And I got hired by a guy named James Wilson, who is an incredible mentor in not even in the CS curriculum, but under his guidance, I learned Java, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, dynamic web applications. We actually had a campus maps application that used tiles before Google Maps was launched. And that was really cool at the time and I got to got to work on that. So a lot of my experience there started at university, but it actually started in, in a job that I had at university, not just the theoretical curriculum. Nice, and you, uh, where did you go to work after, after school? I got hired by Accenture uh, to work in Chicago in a technology consulting position and you know, it was it was great. I got to travel all over. I got to see what enterprise application and uh, enterprise architecture looks like very early in my career. Um, not that I, you know, fell in love with what happens necessarily in the enterprise technology world. There's a reason that I eventually moved to startups, but it was really good to see what it looks like at a, at a big bank or a big insurance company that has literally thousands of applications that are all trying to talk to each other. And some might be 30 years old and some might be have, have been built last year. And these are the things that consultants are tasked with trying to figure out how do you modernize. Uh, and it, so it was, it was a great um, experience and it's actually informed a lot of the, uh, the transition that I made into startups, specifically working for business to business uh, startups and developer platforms. Cool. And what were some of the things about being at a enterprise 
firm like that as a consultant that were were a turnoff in contrast to to your startup experience? The types of technologies you get to work with are not as modern as mm-hmm. you might like. So you, you, if you're working in a big IT firm, you can't just go learn React. I mean, you you might if you're in the research and development arm of that, but a lot of your client project probably has something that's more, you know, 10 or 15 years uh, behind. So in terms of getting to play with the new and cool technologies, especially back when I was doing this um, right out of college, that wasn't as much of an option. So the in terms of the developer experience and the developer friendliness that you that you have and your ability to build skills by iterating quickly, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, and of course, you know, we know there's there's some uh, politics or some bureaucracy or or just uh, co- the, the effort in, uh, involved in coordinating a large group of people that tend to make things go a little more slowly. And so as a programmer or as a uh, architect, you don't get as many, you know, uh, steps up to the plate, as yeah. it were. I heard you can make a killing as a cobalt programmer. It's probably not that fun, but for the, some of these like really the money old is there. <laughs> systems, we're talking like, thirty years or so, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. And w- one thing that my mentor James Wilson at that time told me about was Y two K and technology consultants in Chicago at that time who had actually made a pretty impressive amount of money just doing Y two K consulting because of the desperate nature of the situation for a lot of the banks and firms that were up there. So I, you know, I'll be candid. I was making $11 an hour at that job, which was mm-hmm. actually amazing. It was twice as much probably as I was making at any other job. Yes. But my uh, mentor there, he said, you know, if you, if you do consulting, actually you can make a, a lot of money because it's a really necessary thing. And, and for me, uh, that was really attractive. And I think that, fe- that fed into my early decision not to go into startups, but actually to look in the consulting world a little bit first. Cool. So after your consulting experience you uh you jumped into the world of startups and how did uh where did you start and how did you get to Algolia yeah I started my startup journey with a company called Togetherville and one of the co-founders of Togetherville I had actually worked with at Accenture on an engagement at Yahoo so I was uh, staffed at Yahoo helping them out with a ad platform migration and uh Rajveer uh, also known as Raj, was on my team there. And actually, Raj had not not too much uh, later than that gone and co-founded this startup called Togetherville with uh, Mandeep. And uh, I really liked the mission of that startup, which was to bring uh, kids and families together in a more authentic way on the web and not just with flash games and, and flash tools, but leveraging um, some of the non-flash dynamic ways that were being like shown to us and invisible with products like Facebook. And so I got, uh, I've jumped out of the enterprise world and jumped onto Togetherville as kind of the first uh, engineer. And that was uh, also an important time for me technically. It was when I learned Ruby and Rails and started to expand my tech stack. Um, but then uh, eventually Togetherville got acquired by Disney where I was able to stay for a year and work on some uh, analytics and some identity platform architecture. And after that, uh, in 2013, I joined Keen.io. Uh, I actually met the Keen.io founders at Burning Man, which is something I can you know talk a little bit more about later. Um, but it was uh, another uh, milestone for me in terms of working at a company that was uh, speaking to developers, and that was a developer platform. And then after Keen.io, I joined, joined Algolia, which is also uh, 
a core, you know, our, our core focus is reaching developers and, and showing developers that there's a, a new way or a new efficiency that they can gain with the tools they use when it comes to search. That's awesome. So I, I think I, I met you 2012-ish. I know you're doing another startup uh, in between uh, Keen and, and, and Disney. Um, and I definitely want to drill into um, how you how you met your your team uh, at Keen at, at Burning Man. That'll be uh, pretty, uh, I'm sure, interesting uh, to dive into. But first, what what the hell is this Burning Man thing, and why would anyone want to go to this thing? And full disclaimer, I've been three times, so <laughs> I think it's I think it's a uh, it's great, and uh, I totally get it. But um, for the listeners out there who have never been and are slightly curious, um, what what is Burning Man? It's an ephemeral city, you know, that that gets built in the middle of nowhere. It takes about a month to build, and then all the participants are there for about a week. And it's a mix of art and experience and music and sweat and blood and tears and construction it, it's a and lot of fun and dust, dust. <laughs> so much dust it it's a unique uh, i think experience in that it's it's a challenge the barrier to entry in terms of self-reliance in terms of how much work that you have to put into it is is pretty high actually so um but what's get, what gets created then is a product of so many people working together on it not just a music festival where you have a production company. You know, there's no production company for Burning Man. It's everybody who goes who actually helps create the experience. Oh, of course, there's the Burning Man organization and the Rangers and many, many other volunteers who spend a ton of time um, helping make sure that the event is a su- success, but fundamentally participation is one of Burning Man's core principles. Um, and, and the great thing at Burning Man is you're really in a different context than you're used to in normal life. There's no purchases, no transactions, no conference calls, no deadlines, and and really no no judgment. You're very free to be you, to, to do what you wanna do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest where it's a wonderful place to grow up, but sometimes you don't get exposed to a lot of the different uh, points of view and, and people and everything who are out there. So for me, going to Burning Man the first time, well, after only having lived in San Francisco for a few years after Chicago, was a huge eye-opener. How many times have you been to the burn? I've been six times. Six times. Wow. Yeah. Six of the last seven years. Beat me. I've been three. I haven't been in five years. I've been doing um, some other other festivals I've been checking out. I went to uh, the Symbiosis Gathering up in Oregon this year. It was actually for the uh, total solar eclipse. So you're right in the, the path of totality there. And that was... Kind of felt like a little mini mini Burning Man. There was definitely some dust going on, and you know you've got the art, and uh, um, one of the differences is you've got some trees and you've got some got some water, and the, the temperatures aren't quite as extreme. Um, how was the uh, how was the weather this year? It was warm. It was especially warm at night. Um, one thing that is part of the Burning Man aesthetic culture is fur. So people, you know, wearing a faux fur jacket, everyone has their collection of sort of fur hats or or fur jackets that they wear. And it's very practical because at night it tends to get very cold. Uh, It's the desert. So you get extremes, you get high temperatures during the day and low temperatures at night. Uh, This year we had high temperatures during the day. I wouldn't say much higher than usual, but hot, you know, hundred degrees Fahrenheit. 
um, sometimes, so making you want, want some shade. But at night, it didn't cool down very much. So uh, the common, I guess, common sentiment was, why did we bring all these heavy furs that take up 50% of the costumes that we're bringing and, and not actually get to wear them? Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a few nights where uh, where we could and where it felt a bit normal. But, you know, it can... Uh, the, the thing about the playa and the black rock, uh, the high black rock desert out there is that it's very unpredictable weather. And that's part of what makes you know, everyone like bond together and, and get ready and brace for the challenge. So was it, was it nice having it be warm actually, or was it, were people kind of bummed because they brought all their furs out and they couldn't wear them? Cause it can get quite cold. I, yeah. know, I think last year was uh, especially cold from what I remember. Yeah. Last that. year was, was very cold. I do think that it added to the energy of the festival earlier in the week i feel like i saw more people out even though about the same number of people attended as last year i think that when it's uh colder outside you have that natural natural element of getting people eventually to you know head back in because they've gotten cold or or something like that when it's warm when it's really you know 55 60 degrees at night why not stay out uh why not keep having a good time the cold not there to send you back in so i think we saw more people kind of enjoying the open playa uh into the later hours of the evening because it was a little bit warmer so when i when i first met you and i I saw you with your with your playa bike and uh, you caught my attention there i think that was your your first burn that you were prepping for and I'm wondering, um, from you know one one to six here, um, how how has the experience progressed? You know, every time you go, does it does it feel like it continues to to unfold and expand, and new um, experiences are, are happening, or is it a um, kind of business status quo, business as usual, and <laughs> just another burn? I think it it stays magical. I think that you do get better at the logistics and those become a little bit more automatic, which is nice. Uh, What that allows you to do is more ambitious projects or being able to spend more time on helping other people get there or giving gifts or helping other people have their burn. I think when you go for the first time, it's not so much about what you can give back to the community. It's just you should survive there you know you you just should show up and try to do your best to live by the 10 principles and to take guidance from the more experienced burners around you but really as a first timer your goal is to survive now as you go two three four five six it's more about what can you be giving back to the community what can you be making um for two years uh that playa bike that adam was mentioning was actually turned into a rickshaw service so there was a uh, there was a bench on the back that could hold two adults and my gift to the playa was to find people who were a bit tired or who needed to go very far who needed a ride and actually to just have them hop on the back of the bench and cross the the playa and go wherever they wanted so i was a bit like an uber or a lyft driver nice. uh for the for the playa of course with no no transaction no cost um, no all for free but people would uh, you know offer really amazing things or they would say hey thank you for a ride did you know that this is happening tomorrow uh and it was a great way to have a ton of conversations with people but i think that changes as you go more often you you're you get better at the the basic stuff so that it allows you to do more interesting things and and play a bigger part in the community cool i'm gonna put you on the spot slightly and uh just because you've been six times and I'm, I'm curious on how sticky the uh the burning man principles are and off the top of your head do you how many principles do you think you could 
whip out? Good question. I think I could get five or six. Okay, let's go for uh, it. Maybe more. Okay. Yeah. Let's give it a try. Okay. Um, radical inclusion. Yep. Decommodification. Participation. Civic responsibility. Radical self-reliance. Immediacy. Gifting. Nice. We're at seven. We're at seven. pretty good are there 10 of them i think well there yeah there's there's 10 uh but seven is more than i'd hoped seven yeah, is more than five uh, or that's six. great they're pretty uh, sticky then so yeah these are like real principles as principles should be yeah, yeah i think uh i i think so i think we you know the the test of a principle or of a value is does do people reference it in everyday life do they bring it up um of course do they, they express it too but you know we think at, at, at burning man mention even if the 10 principles are not memorized by by everyone that could be a cool experiment actually yeah. to, to do it but um we do like feel that it's there and then they come up after this i'll have to look up the three that i missed yeah totally i'm curious <laughs> what those are we'll include a link to all the principles in the notes here so you've been you've been to six burns now how how different how is the the pre-burn josh um or how's the post burn, Josh? Rather different than the the pre burn version. So we're in version six now. Version six of Josh. Right, after we're, six we're burn. at version six. We we've been released six times. Um, He's had a lot of dust in the software. Yeah, the the dust accumulates. So I think that's very true. I I think one thing that, um, you know, I I definitely remember my earliest Burning Man experiences. The decompression, which is the the return to the, um, you know, to to the normal world to the what we call the default world sometimes uh as being pretty dramatic you know when you, when you live somewhere else for a week that is very different uh, where you're not spending any money where your your interaction with people is is something you're, you're not used to and you come back it's it's a little bit of a surprise or a shock um and they they're good to warn people coming back for the first time you know, try to take the week off of work if you can try to not be committed to too many things once you get back from burning man because the way that your thinking might have changed and very famously you are not supposed to make any life decisions within two or three weeks of coming back from the burn yeah and this is very important uh this this year we had a camp of 50 people uh probably 10 or 15 people who are brand new and i've i've chatted with several of them afterwards and they are thinking about their life and changes that they could make whether that's a change to a relationship or a job or a, uh, anything like that i think because anytime you're kind of shaken up in terms of what's possible you start to look at what you have and if that's the right thing and if that's suiting you or not um for me you know i i know being a burner has made me less attached to possessions let's say and and more inclined to be a minimalist mm -hmm. i don't like to well let's say when you when you see that you can live for a week on a very small amount of physical possessions and yet still have like the time of your life it really makes you wonder like why do we need so many things why do we like collect and um and purchase and own a lot of things so you know when when we met in 2012 or 13 whenever uh, when it was, I had a big apartment with a lot of furniture and a lot of things in it. And I loved having that so I could host people over. But 
you know, I remember the moving away from that apartment and it was so cumbersome because I just accumulated so much and it felt really, really good. And it continues to feel good to free up a lot of those possessions. And, you know, now I don't even own a couch and, and that for, for me, that suits me pretty well. Um, nice. So I think that's, you know, a simple thing, but it's one way where I can tell that Burning Man sh uh, kind of shook up the mold a little I bit. I love that you don't have a couch. I'm actually not a fan of couches at all. I know that might sound weird to some people, but they're actually just not, I don't, I, it's hard to find a really comfortable couch. Maybe it's like one out of a hundred couches that I'll, that I'll sit on. I'll, I'll think is actually comfortable, but I totally agree. Yeah. We're just, uh, if you know, if you had a shot of us right now, we're actually just on the floor hanging out we've got. You know, Japanese style here. I have a rug. Got a rug. It's, it's nice heavily and comfy. But fuck couches. This is much better than a couch. It's great. <laughs> couch is great for watching TV. If you watch a lot of TV, uh, you know, it, it, it can be nice for that. Um, I I watch some shows. I like my shows, but I usually watch them on, on a laptop. And so I, and when, I, when I have people over, when I entertain, we do a little more Japanese style where we just kind of sit around the the rug and have have some food and some drinks and, and chat and i found that to work pretty well yeah one uh going to going back to possessions i think you know one thing that i think you as, as you're you know bringing up somewhere you know, it's, it's all about culture and what culture you're born in or immersing yourself in currently and being a an american living in the united states we're really good at consuming and buying things like we can buy the hell out of something. We'll research it. We'll price compare it. We'll buy it, and we'll accumulate. So we're we're really we're really good at that. And so it's it's nice to to shake it up. And I, I think uh, Birdie Man's kind of all about shaking up that environment that you're in, and showing you that things can be done a different way. Um, so how um, I want to explore a little bit more about. Um, the burn and you know that that people call it that you know it's like you go through some sort of transformation process a burn if you will um how how is it how has it changed you um you know i know you mentioned the uh you know less possessions and those sorts of things but i'm wondering um how has it changed you mentally how has it changed you emotionally one thing I can say is that it validated a lot of feelings that I had about the world, the way that it could be, about the types of relationships that I could have, about the kind of work that I could have, that I felt in my heart, but hadn't really seen displayed much in the in the outside world. So like, when, let's use a concrete example. If you're working in a company that doesn't really share your values, Maybe it's a big company, it could be a small company too, but a company that really doesn't share your values, where you, where you don't believe in the mission, where you show up every day and you don't feel great about being there. That's the status quo for, for a lot of people. And I think we're very lucky um, sometimes in, in tech and in this world to be a, more passionate about and, and what we're doing and, and have the alignment to values. But for me, going to Burning Man opened up the idea that I could be very aligned in terms of the work that I was doing, in terms of the experiences that I was having, the people I was meeting. It showed, it kind of verified this hypothesis I had that there was more out there, more joy, more celebration, not just like, hey, you're going to live, a, you're going to work a job for 30 years and then retire. And like, you know, that will be when you have your fun. No, the message is more, we're alive now. Let's have fun now. Let's also um, 
make the best contribution that we can. Let's let's make sure those things are aligned. So again, for for me, it was an eye opener that you could kind of have a lot of these things at the same time, and you didn't have to compromise, say, on values to be able to work, to be able to do something, uh, to build stuff and to create, um, but that you could actually do all of that at the same time. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, for me, when I, when I first heard about Burning Man, it was like, what, what is this thing? Burning Man? (laughs) What did they do? I don't, I don't don't understand. Um, but you really have to, to experience it. Like a lot of things in life, you can hear about it, you can read about it, you can intellectualize it, but you got to feel it. You got to experience it. And yeah, it really, it really connects you on a deep, uh, a deep, a deep level. And so I'm, I encourage everyone, uh, to go. I, uh, I've encouraged, um, my non burner friends to, to make the, the trip out there, but it does have that, that barrier to entry. You, know, you got to be able to deal with the dust, with the heat, um, with all that, but it's, uh, you, you got to work for some things. I think that's yeah, another kind of lesson uh, out there is you, you got you got to put some work out in in to to really get what you put in is is, is what you get out as they say. Um, how you know you've got a lot of lot of uh, techies heading you know out into the desert to to do the Burning Man. Um, I'm wondering how have you seen Burning Man shape um, tech companies and, and tech culture? I think it's played a, a pretty integral role. You know, I, I think the cyber culture and the counterculture have really been knit together since the beginning. And if, if you read Fred Turner or Stuart Brand, um, books like From Counterculture to Cyberculture or Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog, or you, you, you see the history that is, defines the region, which is the this unification of like personal computing as a liberating factor and not just corporations owning computers, but people owning computers. At a time that was a very progressive idea. Like why would the individual ever need a computer? But the idea is as an individual to expand your reach, to expand your power, um, to expand what what you can do. And I think that um, from the, the counterculture and from the communalism movement and people moving to communes, it was, it was a bit of the same. But if you if you draw the line to today, you can see the union of counterculture and cyberculture and Burning Man very clearly. You know, in, in 2009, Larry and Sergey from Google uh, put up an alert on google.com to let everybody know that they were going to be at Burning Man and the whole company. And uh, not to worry, if the site broke, they'd be back in a week to fix it. And then also famously, when Larry and Sergey hired Eric Schmidt to become the CEO of Google, part of that was because he had also been to Burning Man. Um, there was a connection there. And, you know, we associate Google and, and their values with don't be evil from early on, which was something that uh, Gmail creator Paul Buckheit coined. And you know, don't be evil is not one of the Burning Man principles, but it's still something that, that fits in. And it's still something that is a more of a countercultural value coming into what is a corporation. And so Google was founded in 1998. And at that time, Burning Man was 28 years old, or I'm sorry, was 12 years old. Um, But I want to talk about a company that was founded in 2012, when Burning Man was 26 years old. And, you know, this company is called Keen.io, and it's where where I was hired as the first engineer. And to say that Keen's values were influenced by Burning Man is, is an understatement, I think. Uh, today's, today Keen's values are introspection, continuous learning, personal agency, 
honesty and empathy. Radical transparency is also an unofficial value. And you know, keep in mind that these values are coming from a company who is a highly technical venture-backed startup who's you know, raised $29 million. So here you're, you're really seeing the influence of Burning Man and the counterculture, I think, over long periods of time and, and changing different generations of companies, but it's still kind of coming in. I think that's, um, uh, those, are, those are points that are forgotten, you know, the, the history of this, right? I think so, and yeah. We'll, we'll include leaks to Fred Turner and... Um, who was the author of the whole Earth history? St- uh, Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand. Yeah, well, I think those are. I've heard of both of those. I need to probably read those myself. It'd be very uh, fascinating to read. Um, but for uh, um, another kind of data point here, when I worked at got a little airplane flying by or something. <laughs> when I worked at uh, Apple, um, I was an intern, and you know, there for the summer, and overlapped with you know the. The Burning Man, um, the week of Burning Man, and I had no idea what it was. But you know, it was like one week I showed up and two thirds of the office was was missing, <laughs> and I was like wow. the only one not you know in the know. Then and, and was still was still hanging out there, and I was kind of asking around and was hey, what's Burning Man? You know, where where's Paul? And he's like, oh, Paul's in the desert walking around naked right now. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what is why is he doing that? You know, it was like so. Um, Burning Man naive at that time, but, um, yeah, it's amazing, uh, you know, to, to see, you know, companies like Apple, companies like Google, um, to, to be connected to counterculture, connected to Burning Man, and then newer companies coming up like Keen, Keen IO to, to even be heavily built on, um, uh, on Burning Man. So how, uh, how maybe go a little bit deeper into that how did how did keen i o um uh, get so connected to burning man and what's the origin story there yeah the the founders and the early team um i think found burning man uh, not too not too long if after they had made the transition to san francisco um is a, a little story about keen i o the first six people there were all from the midwest all from uh, Illinois or Missouri, and actually all attended the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So there's a bit of a an early connection there, but then also moved out at some point to San Francisco. Um, and I actually met Kyle and Michelle from Keene at a Illinois alumni event that was happening in Palo Alto. And a year later, um, we met at Burning Man. Uh, we, we had kind of kept up touch, but what had happened during that year is that uh, Kyle and along with uh, Dan and Ryan had created this company and they had gone through Techstars, they had gone to San Antonio and they had uh, come back and we ser- sort of serendipitously met at Burning Man one night. Uh, I was out for a walk and reached what's called the trash fence, which is the end of Burning Man. It's once you've walked uh, so far, a couple of miles really, that you can't walk any farther. And so then I, I, I turned back. And on the, on the way back, I caught uh, Dan and Kyle, who were just there uh, hanging out a piece of art, Look, uh, and the rest of the team was with them. And it was, it was really a cool moment of serendipity to say, hey, like we know each other from San Francisco, but now we're out here on the playa. And we ended up playing, you know, glow frisbee for a couple of hours and the grilled cheese cart came along. That's a thing at Burning Man. There's a cart that goes around and gives you a grilled cheese. And, Amazing. Uh, it was around sunrise and it was just sort of the perfect moment 
that we got to share there. How and epic is that sunrise? Yeah. Like you've oh, never it's seen just uh, a, a incredible. So you see one on the playa. On the playa, yeah. a huge All the dust stretch and, of land. Yeah. Uh, so much, so much space there. Um, we had a nice red sunrise this year, which is really cool. If you've never seen that, um, things you can only really get in the desert, and that's a thing that everybody looks forward to during Burning Man is how many sunrises can I, you know, make myself stay up for, yeah. or even better, go to sleep early yeah. and wake up for wake the up sunrise. For that. That's a tip that I, I did this year a, a lot more, and that's actually a better way to see a sunrise because then you're actually awake. Um, but. That sounds like a that sounded like a really epic day right there. Like you yeah. can really bomb with somebody. You got glow frisbee, sunrise, grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> exactly. Those, those like, three things. Yeah, all three, three of those things. And uh, yeah, it, it directly led into conversations a few months later about joining uh, Keen and joining the team there. Wow. Uh, and and it just uh, always look very fondly back on that on that night and and how you know it could connect connect us outside of just the the normal uh situation in, in the normal city and to, yeah. to be able to go deeper and say the other you know the other thing is you're here and i'm here we must share some values are these the values that we want to build a company around and yeah i, th I think they were and that's yeah. that really makes a for a very strong powerful team i think uh you know part of the the magic of uh of, of burning man is the uh is the idea of synchronicity and you know, it's, you know, we're walking around, you know, if you're, if you're not at Burning Man, you're kind of just going through your day or whatever, but you're not really looking out for it or in touch with it. But for some reason out, you know, in the playa with, you know, without a schedule and, you know, you're, you're in your, in your element, um, you almost like tap into this other, I don't know if you, what level, it's like a level of flow in a way where you're just kind of open to, to chance and, you never know who you're going to meet and how that will, how that relationship will unfold and how it'll manifest, you know, post burn and, and in your case and, and to, yeah. to working with the team. Yeah. I think at in, a tech company. Yeah. in the normal, uh, normal day to day, we're uh, very married to the idea of cause and effect. You do something and then there's an effect, but you can actually suspend that for long periods of time and stop thinking about cause and just think about effect. So it's an abstract way to put it, but wherever you go, now this could be Burning Man or it could be anywhere else. Um, the, the moment that you stop trying to believe that everything that happens to you is a result of you trying to make it and rather like maybe the world is bringing something to you, uh, you open up more possibilities. Your, mm -hmm. your vision gets wider for like what you can see and, and what you can do. And I think that's... Um, again, not at all limited to Burning Man. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about is not limited to Burning Man. Um, there are many other places in the world, many other ways to open yourself up to these kind of outcomes. Um, Burning Man just happens to be one that I've um, gone to and, and seen some of this happen. And so for me, it's it's quite magical in that way. I love that. Yeah, it really helped me look out for those little clues that may be left there for me. It's just up to me to actually recognize them and then choose to either follow it or, or not. <laughs> but yeah. that's definitely, uh, that was definitely something that I, that I picked up there. So, um, you know, we've, we've talked about tech companies a bit and you talked a bit about, you know, the, the counter culture and, uh, you know, the relationship there. Um, you know, Burning Man is also, you know, a gifting economy and, 
uh, it's not a you know, traditional you know, transaction, right? It's a transaction, but it's you know, it's based on love, if you will, or you know, wanting to to give something and make something and, and give something, create an experience for somebody. How how do you think about open source communities and you know, what happens what happens at Burning Man? I think there are a lot of similarities there. You know, again, I, I mentioned before that the counterculture and the cyberculture grew up together. And, and a huge part of the cyberculture was this idea of open source, was the idea that you could create code that was not just proprietary and not just owned by one company, but that was actually shared amongst the community. And so much of what we have today is open source. The world runs on open source. You know, As of 2016, 80% of smartphones and 60% of servers are all running an open source operating system, most of them Linux or, or Unix. You know, and that's um, when it's a phenomenon that is able to exist through a lot of the same values, a lot of like participation in that everybody is expected to contribute. You don't just have a few people contributing uh, but you have everybody pitching in to to create that, and I think that's you know, that, that's the ideal, and that's what what has happened in a lot of these places. Um, and the connection again between the hippies and the sort of early techies were were sharing a ton of ideals. Like I said, personal computing at that point was seen as revolutionary, um, an individual expression of freedom. And the, both the roots of like Burning Man and open source come from that, that same place. You know, there's a good quote from Fred Turner that I like. Uh, he wrote a paper called Burning Man at Google, New Media and Society. And the quote is that Burning Man models the social structures on which manufacturing now depends. And at the same time provides a place in which to work through the psychological and material constraints that it imposes. So that that's really interesting. Burning Man models the social structures on which manufacturing now depends. And he's not talking about the manufacturing of physical physical goods. He's talking about how software gets created, how applications get created. And the you know, I you're a developer, I'm a developer. We both know that we search Stack Overflow. We look at GitHub. We look in places that are publicly available and and built by the commons when we run into an issue we don't just browse our company's own silo of information that that ship has really sailed um so the same thing at, at burning man there's no one expert it's not a top-down culture it's very bottom up mm -hmm. so in terms of being bottom up open source is very bottom up burning man is very bottom up and i think that's that's something that they share and i've no doubt that somewhere out there there are open source projects where the collaborators met at Burning Man and said, hey, you know, we, we have the same problem. Why don't we work together on it? It's not to make money. It's to solve a problem or it's to see its self-expression. It's to see if you can do something. No doubt. Yeah, I imagine people maybe outside of, say, the software uh, community, maybe well, I'll pick, pick on finance, uh, for example, that maybe like, wait, you get paid to write code. You're going to write code for free and give it out to to everybody like no like it should you know you should you should sell that code and it's it's interesting to to think you know what would the world be like if if there wasn't this open source thing and you know if there wasn't all this other stuff to to build on top of or knowledge to pull you know from so it's a uh, it's 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 perfect for 
the, the world of software, and I'm curious on how this you know, model gets applied to, to other parts. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And I think that it's something for everyone to be mindful of that this kind of commons-based new production and, and new media, as, as Fred Turner calls it, is largely limited to uh, software, I think, right now, but can be expanded to a lot of other places. And I think we're, we're starting to see that more you know, when we see GitHub being used not for software, but to work on a legal contract, for example, or to be uh, used to work on something else. It, the idea there is when you put something on GitHub or another like a site that allows for pure or uh, like pure production, yeah, it, it's a new way of moving forward in, in terms of the work and, yeah. and saying like this is something we want everybody to work on. So I, I think that's. Uh, but I, I think everybody can, and especially the people in tech, um, can do better than we are today at pushing this production model, which we think is very successful because we have open source and we have um, values that we're living by that we that we think are are actually good and we think lead to good results. But we're not as good yet as as taking those into other areas. And I think we we need to get better at that. Awesome. So that's a good, it's a good uh, breakdown of, of Burning Man and what it's uh, what it's about. Yeah, one angle. I think there's a lot of different angles to Burning Man, but this is a good mapping of Burning Man and and uh, the intersection of Burning Man and, and technology. We're going to take a, a little break here, and then we'll be back, and uh, we'll drop in to uh, talk about developer relations. And we're back here. We just uh, read up on some some black tea here. Thanks, Josh, for putting that together for us. You're welcome. So nice and uh, caffeinated. So now we're going to get into Josh's current gig. He's at Algolia. And maybe start off by telling us what the company does. Yeah, definitely. So Algolia is a hosted search API. We make it easy for developers to build the search feature of their application. Now, whether that's a website or a mobile app or something from the back end, uh, the API allows you to send in data easily in a JSON format and then indexes it all behind the scenes. And then you can call another endpoint when you want to query that data. And that's whether it's with a keystrokes that the user has typed in or facets, or filters, or anything else that you would expect from being able to build a rich search experience. Cool. How did you, um, how did you come to find that company, and how did they find you? I first met the founders Nicolas and Julian at Heavybit. Uh, not at Burning not Man. At Burning surprisingly, Man. there. Look at this. Someone <laughs> I haven't uh, did meet for the first time at Burning Man. Uh, it's it's possible. Yeah. I met them at Heavybit. Um, which is an um, infrastructure kind of investment, uh, later stage plus co-working space down in Soma in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, I, I remember meeting them and talking to Julien, who is the co-founder and CTO, and he was talking about the search engine that we were creating. And Keen.io was a analytics API and Algolia was building a search API. So we, we had a, a good conversation about that and about what we were doing. 
Uh, but that was that was quite a, a while ago. I reconnected with Algolia a bit in Paris um, just about a year and a half ago, kind of seeing the kind of progress that they were making and you know continuing to hear more and more about them in the developer world. And so that kind of caused me to get back in touch with them and start talking about uh, working together. Great. So you're um, heading a uh, developer relations team there. Maybe uh, touch on you know, what is developer relations exactly and you know, why is it useful for, for a company? Yeah. You know, one way I describe developer relations very simply is, is PR for geeks. You know, the only way to speak to a geek is really through another geek. Uh, you know, it's that simple. If you do developer relations, you, you have to be a geek in some sense. Geek and, to and geek. It's geek to geek communication yeah. protocol. <laughs> you know, developers are, are very much geeks, very, you know, um, having a very specific knowledge about the language or the framework or the world that they exist in and usually trusting other people in that world for the information, for, for verification of information and for learning about what's new and what's coming in. So I think we've learned as a, an industry of creating tools for developers that some traditional marketing and sales methods don't work if they don't respect the geek to geek protocol which is that developers mostly listen to other developers. And if you're speaking to developers, it has to be coming from an informed, knowledgeable place. And, and it has to be not just with a sense of trying to sell them on something, but trying to help them understand a problem that they have, help them understand an alternate solution, help them understand why, in fact, your, your product or your API might be something that they want to use, something that will make their life easier. So you were a... Um, previously you were a full-time uh, programmer and that was kind of your day-to-day -day, and um, you made this transition into developer relations. Tell me a little bit about why um, you decided to, to make that, to make that move. Yeah. At, at first it was very unintentional. It was um, a result of getting involved in Keen's developer relations program, even not as a developer advocate, but just as someone who wanted to focus on a, kind of the, the opportunity that the company had at that point, which was to take the platform that we had built and help developers understand how it works, how they can use it, why it's different, um, all these things. You know, uh, at Keen.io, we hired a developer advocate, Justin Johnson, right after me. Uh, so I think the seventh person to join the company, maybe. Um, also, I, I think that underscores Keen's Burning Man inspired values, which is that the company hired a developer slash customer advocate so early on um, to uh, look after that relationship and, and to grow in, in that kind of an authentic way. You know, I spent my first year and a half at Keen.io architecting and designing the distributed system that stores the data and then developers run queries on. Uh, but then after that, I started to work more with Justin and with the community team there to actually go out into the field and, like I said, get get people excited about the product and what they could do, which includes building applications on top of it to say, hey, did you know you could build this with Keen? Did you know you could build that? Uh, and so while I was doing that, I, I wasn't called a developer advocate. I actually just uh, gave myself a title called Open Sorcerer, and that kind of stuck. And so I, but I was going around and doing effectively the things that developer relations and developer evangelists uh, advocates do. Uh, so after Keen, when it was time to look for a next challenge, uh, I saw that Algolia had a developer advocate position and I had never previously thought about applying for that. I thought probably I'll go back in and 
you know, build software, lead software teams. But I realized that maybe um, it was time for something that was a little bit different, a little bit new, a little bit more intersectional and applied to that. And, um, you know, very, very glad that I, that I did. I think I've uh, learned a lot. I think being a developer advocate forces you to work a lot more with marketing and sales than you're used to and have an understanding of the problems that they deal with that as a pure engineer, you don't have to think that much about marketing and sales, but as a developer advocate, you definitely do. And I think for me, that's been a big growth area uh, that I'm, I'm thankful for. How long, um, or uh, how, uh, newer old is the developer relations team um, at Agolia? Is it something that's always existed? Cause they've been, they're primarily a uh, API or SDK company, right? So it's a pretty important function, you know, for that um, sort of uh, business to have a team like this. Um, were you um, coming into an existing team, or was this a team that you, uh, or uh, was this a, a function that you had to build from the ground up? It was a brand new team. Uh, I was the first developer advocate hired. And there wasn't anything at the company at that point called developer relations or developer advocacy. However, there was a lot of work that was going on that was very much developer advocacy or developer relations. A lot of places where Algolia had offered to power the search uh, for free in in a location that developers visited frequently, like Hacker News or like Product Hunt or uh, places where... um, developers would, would would essentially be. Um, also, before I got there, the team built a, an amazing plugin that helps you search GitHub in, in an easier way um, and address some of the challenges there. So one thing that drew me to the opportunity was that the company was already doing a lot of developer relations and developer advocacy without having that role, without having that title. Because so I think it's very important that if you're selling to developers and you want developers to use your tools, that you have some kind of function. Uh, like that. And I think at Algolia, that was just very organically coming from the founding team being very involved in the community and the early team being very involved in both the community and in thinking of interesting ways to raise the awareness for Algolia with, without doing traditional marketing, but more by making partnerships and powering the search on um, on places where developers lived. So I, I did come in as the first developer advocate and then helped um, sort of create and build the developer relations team there. But it was really coming from a, a building on a foundation that was already very strong. How big is the uh, the team uh, that you have now? And it sounds like that was a great opportunity because the company was already doing it in a sense. And you, your opportunity was to kind of come in and formalize it um, a bit and put, a, put some horsepower um, behind it. Um, so how big is, uh, the team now? And, um, maybe we can touch on, you know, how, uh, how you, um, thought about and went about building the team. Yeah. The team is five people today and we focus on developer community. We also do some developer marketing and we also think about the broader developer ecosystem, which Creek is kind of creating partnerships and looking out to be in touch with trends and organizations who we think are going to be very impactful in the developer space in the next you know, one, two, or, or five years. Um, the way I think that, oh, the, the way I think about building a developer relations team is that you have to be strong in the competencies that the, the people that are using your platform have. Um, so if people are using your tool alongside a variety of other tools, 
you want to be able to speak to the challenges that they may have. You want to be able to empathize with the problems that they're going to run up against. Um, so one thing that uh, at Algolia we look for when we hire developer advocate is what is their uh, the community that they've participated in a lot or a technical domain of expertise, whether they're an open source contributor or a regular speaker or someone who helps organize a, events in a particular region or a particular community. We're looking for how can this person be a bridge to developers that have a bridge between Algolia and where they live today in kind of an authentic way. Um, so it's a bit of looking for a specialty in that sense, but then also generally we want developer advocates who can stay technical and stay credible. We think that's, that's very important. Uh, we agree with, uh, uh, Rado Meyer from Google in, in a very well-known post, I would say about the core competencies of developer relations and developer advocates that they need to be legit engineers. Okay. So we, that, that's something that I think we found is, is very true. If you're going to be in a conversation with a developer and you know, it's, you want to be credible, you have to follow that geek to geek protocol and you have to be there um, together. And I think uh, also being very good communicators is another thing. So if, if you look at why should an engineer think about becoming a developer advocate, it might be because you want to spend more of your time communicating. And, and that can mean developing code and content. Um, and it can mean giving talks and presentations. And it can also mean going to events and meeting a lot of people, getting up on stage, essentially being kind of um, publicly facing or, or, or forward. Um, and things, things like that. So we look for, you know, code and content and community as being these three pillars of um, experience. And as we're building the team, we want there to be a good balance amongst all of those. What does an event look like for, for an event that you've put together, you know, to, for, for the Algolia developer community and what, what goes into that and what's the, uh, what's the uh, success metric that you're looking for, you know, coming out and coming out of that event? Yeah, we have an event called Search Party that we've run six or seven times now, both in San Francisco and in Paris, and, and also in Austin, and maybe a few other places. Uh, the The idea of Search Party is to bring together developers to learn about the the field of search and how they can use it, and also other trending technologies that they might be interested in learning about, uh, and essentially and how those connect to search. So, for example, you know, uh, last month in San Francisco, we had. Uh, Netlify and Auth0 and Firebase come and speak at this uh, search party that we had. Um, some really great speakers from there. And the theme was the serverless movement and how we're re-architecting applications away from the monolith and more in, in bite-sized chunks and pieces that we can um, we can do more granularly. And APIs play a huge role in the future of, of the serverless movement. So when we put together events like that, our first goal is to make sure we're delivering value to the person who comes there. They want to learn something new. Uh, they want to make a connection. I think that's the most important thing. Um, the way that we measure the success of our events is traditional measures like how many people show up and how many people tweet about it. Um, we also look at the kind of connections that are being made and, and if the vibe is very good. Because if, if the vibe, which you can't measure with numbers, but you can look at an event and say this has a good vibe or it doesn't have a good vibe, uh, if the vibe is good, people will come back. And we would rather start small with a good vibe than start big with a bad vibe. 
Um, and so we've been pretty selective so far about the topics that we're curating for search party and then also um, getting the attendees and the speakers there. Uh, we're, we're looking to create something that people want to come back to time and again because they know that they're going to learn something. Yeah, it makes sense. Looking for, for good vibes and um, having a really kind of quality experience. How big are um, are these events and um, how uh, and are you um, producing content yourself for these as well or coordinating with other speakers from other companies and or a combination of both? Yeah, it's a combination. We try to have two to three talks from the community or from other companies and then one talk about something search or Algolia specific. Uh, that way we know that our, our community of Algolia users uh, has something to learn there that, that might uh, benefit the way that they're using the API or, or show them another way to use Algolia or a better way that they hadn't thought of. Uh, but we're also, it's it's not just about us, it's also about the broader community that's, that's there. And that can come through community members who are showing a project that they've built with Algolia uh, and describing like their experience building it. Or it can come from uh, from other companies who developers are, are typically using our API or using our technology alongside of. So did you always um, fancy yourself as a, as a developer um, advocate? Was that always part of the kind of career trajectory that you wanted to go on? Or um, is it uh, something that more um, was more an outgrowth of all your Burning Man experience and kind of seeing, you know, what happens with, you know, communities at Burning Man and wanting to do something um, beyond, you know, just uh, the programming aspect. Yeah, I think Burning Man did get me more excited about the potential of communities and like pure based production in the commons and, and things like that. Um, you know, I remember doing a GitHub contribution open source streak where I tried to commit to open source for uh, every day for for a while and you know, some people get into 365 days or 600 days I did not I think I got about two months um, that's just that's just me not being uh, you know, it, my strong suit is, is probably not doing something day in and day out I'm, I'm more of kind of a, an uh, say an improviser but it, it got me thinking about um, like rituals like committing to open source. And the, the theme of this year's Burning Man was Radical Ritual, which was, um, I thought, really cool. We actually tried to do something in the camp every day to be in line with that theme. But I, there is, uh, you know, even, even back when I started making my transition into startups, I learned more about developer community than I ever had before. Part of that was being a client at Pivotal Labs and seeing the Ruby and Rails community and seeing how different that was from like the enterprise Java that I was doing, let's say. And uh, I wrote a gem uh, in the Ruby world called Mongoid Alize, which is a denormalization for MongoDB documents. That was my first like official real open source project with like you know, over a hundred GitHub stars or something. Um, because I wanted to do something and, and give something back to the Ruby community that I benefited a lot from, and so I think in my in my head there some of those parallels led me more to a developer advocate or developer relations type, and and then I'd have to credit you know people like Justin Johnson and Tim Falls and Brandon West who were kind of early people that I met in the developer relations world and 
their perspective on community is very powerful. And that, that kind of drew me in, I cool. would say. The uh, greats include them as uh, shout outs um, in, in the links. Um, so part of the, part of the gig is uh, public speaking. And has that been something you've always been into or something that you um, uh, worked on as, as part of you know, becoming a developer advocate? It's definitely something I've worked on to try to get uh, better at it. Um, it's never been something for me that was too terrifying. I think even even going back before I was a developer advocate, I was still doing presentations. You know, I remember presentations when I was at Accenture to clients and like these very stressful situations or to large groups of people. And for uh, for me, that was not too much of an issue. But one one thing that developer advocates can play a role in or help out on a lot is for all the engineers in their company who might have some public speaking holdups or hangups and helping them work through those uh, because it's very possible. We, we actually have a uh, initiative at Algolia called the speaker program. And the idea behind the speaker program is we want to help every engineer inside of the company get up on stage for all the way from having an idea for a talk, submitting it as a CFP, getting it accepted and then actually getting there on and on D zero, giving the talk and, and not being too stressed about that. So we offer everyone in the company, a two day public uh, speaking workshop training um, that they can go to. And then also assistance uh, with a CFP and my, my colleague, uh, Tim Carey, who's a developer advocate uh, as well, really has uh, taken that program from, you know, I mean, created that program. And now I think we've had almost 40, 45 people go through it and a great and a, and a big number of those have actually gone and given talks may have gotten on stage wow that's that's a really cool program so that's a service your team provides is that's right speaker, speaker training that's right yes very 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 cool um so it sounds like you were uh blessed with the ability to to not freak out um with public speaking like most people um so it's more so um uh, for you, it's more so uh, that blessing than any particular uh, tactics um, or things that you do before public speaking uh, to kind of de-stress or or reduce the anxiety around it. Yeah, I I, I still do a few things. Um, you know, I do a lot of yoga. I do try to meditate when I can. Yeah. Uh, before a talk, um, preparation is always really good for. Yeah, feeling more comfortable on the day of. I wouldn't say I'm the best at it, but uh, I went through the public speaking workshop that we offer to anyone at Algolia, and that's actually helped me quite a bit in the last six months. In the times that I was on stage, you know, there were some really good points there around don't speak too fast and have an outline. And uh, we had, we had great we have uh, external companies who are like that's their thing. They do these trainings coming in and, and helping us. So I think for for me that was still really helpful and still helps me anytime I have to get up on stage. So you mentioned meditation. Is that um, kind of a regular part of the uh, warm up for for a speaking thing? It's um, maybe talk a little bit about you know what that looks like. You know how long and um, you know, how do you do it exactly? Yeah, um, we'll wait for this uh, vehicle to come by. We're we're in the lower hate in San Francisco. Every time we record, we're in a different spot, so get to see everyone's uh, ambient uh, sounds here. But I think it's uh, I think it's past. I think we're good. I think yeah. we're in the clear. I think we're in the clear. Um, yeah, you know, on uh, on meditation. I, 
uh, you know, do yoga maybe three or four times a week. Uh, and I think that really helps ground me. Uh, when it comes to events, I will try to have at least 10 or 15 minutes of quiet time, which is kind of meditation combined with just no noise and, and no, um, no and distractions you, being sitting around. cross-legged with your eyes closed kind of thing, or just more kind of like device off and focus yeah. on your breathing and yeah, device off breathing. Even if you're already sort of walking around in circles, you yeah. know, maybe you're, you're really stressed. Yeah. The breath is the most important thing. This is what you learn in yoga. This is what you learn in meditation. So if you can get yourself to a state of breathing before you begin, you're much more likely to succeed and much more likely to remember those things about public speaking. So my ritual focuses, I think, more around the the breath than the body position. Although, you know, as as I do more and more, uh, there's there's certainly room for that to improve. Yeah. So during an actual talk, do you have any tips um, for somebody that uh, is a uh, 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 up and coming or a person that's interested in getting into into speaking? Um, you mentioned some things like don't talk too fast. Um, are there any other tips along those lines that would be beneficial to share? Yeah, I, I think not talking too fast is an important one that we all forget from time to time. Engineers and can really, at times, talk very, very can. fast. Like sometimes my parents think I talk too fast. <laughs> but then I'm like, Mom, you should meet some of the people that I work with because they talk even faster. And it's like, well, I, I have to like slow down to like figure out how to, how to parse it. But um, I think we're, we're so used to operating at a you know, at the speed of, you know, electrons, you know, at our, on our computers that, you know, we try to get so much out, um, through a much slower, um, medium. And the the goal is to communicate, you know, so if you're talking too fast, you know, transmission might not be received unless you, unless you slow it down a bit. Um, yeah. And you never know how much your audience knows about the topic and the topics tend to be very deep and very detailed. Yeah. So trying to be as concrete as you can is another tip that I give people. Remember that it's a storytelling exercise. Um, you'll always be a more effective speaker if there's kind of a story attached to what you're telling. That's the way that people remember information. It's a very powerful tool. Yeah. So, and, and I think a lot of programmers especially tend to be very abstract and very kind of detail-oriented in that way, but the storytelling. So not just like, here's the framework, here's how it works, but here, how did I come to the conclusion? Why did I build it? What were the gaps that I saw? with existing frameworks that made me want to do this. So there's always like a, a mental journey that you took to learn about the thing that you're giving a presentation about. So highlighting that can be very important yeah, like and help that. the audience connect. That's great. Also not moving around too much. Yeah, you know, when I watch a video of me uh, giving a talk, it almost looks like I'm boxing sometimes because I'm going back and forth and I have a lot of energy and uh, making a lot of gestures and gestures themselves are really, really good. You should use them and, and do what your body feels is natural because the audience will see that. But there are a couple of uh, just basic physical tips that I learned from our excellent coach in, in Paris in our public speaking workshop that, you know, keep your feet planted. It will actually help you think. It will help you breathe. Try not to move your feet too much. Uh, move your hands and, and make gestures, but keep the feet planted. And, and he, he showed us a video of when we don't do that. And it, it really, yeah. it, it lets you know... Uh, that, that's stay that's stay grounded, but stay grounded. Use your use your hands to emote. Yeah, like mm -hmm. an Italian. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Be expressive. Yeah. 
what um maybe going to the hand and just gestures in, in, in general like what what do you feel is like the right amount of, of movement to have because it you can maybe it sounds like you were uh doing too much before and you had to kind of throttle back how did you get yourself to to come to a more kind of stable point with uh, with motion one thing that helps a lot is watching videos of yourself as you're giving talks or during a demo um like if, if you're giving a preview of the presentation to some coworkers, which is a great idea and definitely something you should do and i'm sure your coworkers would be willing to to watch it and to help you but you can watch video there and see what you're doing because some some movement is going to be adding to the story that you're telling and other movement is not other movement will be distracting for the audience and it will unground you and when you get ungrounded that's when you start to speak too fast yeah that's a good tip there a lot of people are hesitant to watch themselves or to listen to themselves. It is. And I know that a I have. Everyone always thinks they sound difficult experience, weird or terrible or whatever. But you really have to to get over it. You have to have yeah. the beginner's mind, uh, even if you're a seasoned, you know, executive or professional or, or leader. You have to come into public speaking with the idea of there's some stuff to learn, and you're not going to be perfect at it first, and uh, yeah. that can that can be hard. I know our our public speaking workshop. One thing that's great is that people from all over the company come in and all different layers of the leadership. So our, our CEO has been in this public speaking workshop with uh, you know, probably an engineer who just joined the other day and they're all in that same room. And so you have to really get rid of your ego and you have to really get rid of this idea of like you are experienced in your field so you think you know maybe what public good public speaking is. The reality is that you might not. <laughs> you could be very senior executive and actually still have some uh, presentation things to, to learn. So it, a lot of it's just great. And I think that's part of why for Algolia, it's become a bit of a cultural uh, ritual is to go to this public speaking workshop and share that experience of a bit of vulnerability uh, with, the, with other people on the team, regardless of what level they're on. When you're in the workshop, do you actually, I mean, imagine you get up and practice and you get some critique. Are you actually getting some critiques from your coworkers or is it just from like one coach? It's also from the coworkers. Yeah, cool. So the coach will record the video and then play it back and everybody will have Everyone. a chance to comment on it. Now, when yeah. they comment on it, what the coach says is don't, um, don't make it subjective. Don't make it about that person. Just point out things that happened and that you notice them, like the yeah. feet were moving. You know, don't, don't be very like, direct or uh, be, be candid but exactly yeah, yeah, like right try not to <laughs> make fun kind of yeah. be scientific uh, you're yeah. you're observing uh, the situation and making a thing yeah. around that but actually uh, algolia's culture candor is one of our core values and right. giving feedback to each other is one of the main things that we do that we feel makes us a very strong company because yeah. we can do that and actually the public speaking workshop helps or reinforce that and it goes right along with that because sometimes the, the feedback that you need is from the people who are you watching you speak and from your colleagues and they have to feel um feel good about giving that feedback and that you can receive that feedback mm -hmm. and i think so that that works out kind of well it can be yeah. pretty intense in the terms of public speaking but that's what helps you get better that's what helps you grow totally and it it can be hard to hear the feedback if especially if you're a, a sensitive a sensitive type so you really have to learn to like not take it personally and it helps when the participants are 
you know, being objective and stuff with their feedback. Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah. I think it's important to learn how to receive feedback in a way that you know that it's, it's from someone who cares and someone who's yeah. trying to help you get better. And then you also know how to give feedback in a way that is direct and clear, but it also shows that you care yeah. and shows that you're not giving feedback to, to pick on someone or to complain, but it's just genuinely out of a sense that you want them to, yeah. or you, you think they have an opportunity to improve or there's something that they, if they knew that they could be better and, and trying to help, help them sort of move forward in that way is, is really important. That's a whole other skill, giving feedback, receiving feedback. It's not easy. Yeah. And, but we, uh, but it helps you get better. It helps you get better at public speaking. It helps you get better at whatever you're doing. Exactly. You know, yeah. That feedback. Yeah. yeah. And we, we expect, you know, and, and we actually say during the hiring process, this is one of the ways that we are. This is part of how we operate. And, you know, you have to be ready for that. You will, you will get hired at Algolia and maybe the first month you will get some very direct feedback and it'll always come from a caring place, but you have to want to get that feedback. You have to want to be presented with the information that will help you get better. And that, that's something that not everybody is um, always wanting. But if, if someone wants that and they join Algolia, they're going to get a lot of that and they'll probably be very successful. Cool. Let's um, end by talking about community building since that was kind of the big theme um, for our, our discussion here. For for someone that's you know looking to build a community for their company, for their product, um, what are some of the things that they should focus on in order to, to cultivate one? A good way to think about community building is that you have different layers of commitment inside of the community. We have a model for this at Algolia called the orbit model. Um, and the, the same model has been called the community onion or the commitment curve. I think at Airbnb, it's called the commitment curve. Um, but the general idea is that inside of your community, you want to start by reaching out to the people who are already the most invested and the most interested, who, who sort of have the most to gain from their participation in the community. That's the way communities work. You give something and you get something else back. Usually you get something more back because you have everybody there who's making the, the parts more than the sum of the whole or the whole more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. I think that's the way it that's works. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Um, works, works good that way. And so our orbit model, we call it orbit because we think about it like a solar system. You know, in the, in the middle you have the sun and that's Algolia and our community it orbits us. It's, it's everyone who's around us having some kind of experience with the product or with the people in the company. And there are people who are at like the mercury level who they're super close to us and we call them our ambassadors. They're our developer community ambassadors. These are people who are building on Algolia all the time. They're creating open source projects. They're creating hacks. They're blogging. They're giving talks about Algolia. They're, they're not employees. They're just people who are really passionate about what we're doing and they're out there using their own time to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so they're very close to us. Now we also want to reward them and uh, thank them as much as possible. Gifting, again, the, the Burning Man principle, yeah. the open source principle, it applies here too. It applies quite strongly to community building. So if you have an ambassador, you want to reward them. Um, you want to thank them. So we do things like helping them sponsor meetups in their areas, helping them um, get the training that they need on Algolia, on the product, to be able to go and give talks. Uh, sometimes we'll ask them to chime in on new features or give them access to things um, ahead of time. 
Um, but so our, our ambassadors are sort of the most close layer of the orbit and every community has that. And then beyond that, we have a, a second layer of the orbit that's more like Earth or Mars distance away from the sun. And these are people who are invested and have tried Algolia and they, they like it. They've maybe said something about it. They're interested in it. Um, this would be but Venus though, right? Yeah. Second planet. <laughs> yeah, right? Better. Venus or, or beyond. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, so when it comes to community building in the orbit model, what you want to think about is how do you get people that are stuck out at Neptune into yeah. Venus? And how do you get people that are at Venus all the way to Mercury? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you give them a reason to participate in the community and to, to increase their commitment and to increase their involvement and the, the number of times that they're, that they're doing something um, for you? So because the, the, the reason it's important is that you can't offer the same opportunity to someone who's out at Pluto or Neptune uh, that you can to someone as Mercury. You, you don't, someone you've just met, you don't ask them to host an Algolia meetup. That, that doesn't make sense, at A, because you don't know what they're like yet, and because it's not the right investment that they're going to make at that time. Mm -hmm. But you can give them something else. You can say, hey, you know, it seems like you've built a really cool project. Maybe you can write a blog post about it and we'll help you promote it, or maybe we'll help get people to your, your app. Um, that you've built. So it's kind of, the orbit model is all about calibrating the opportunity that we offer to where that person is in the community in terms of their commitment level. I see. And you know, for someone that's in at Mercury and, and being able to have the opportunity to, to sponsor um, a meetup, for, so that's almost like an honor that they get to, to do that in a way, right? And they're, they're stoked to do it. And that helps them on a personal level, I'm sure, because they're um, kind of elevating, you know, their, their, uh, their stature as, as someone that's knowledgeable um, about this particular technology. Right. Um, and these aren't financial rewards, right? These are all experiential, um, kind of things, right? Right. Yeah. The, in terms of, you know, financial, we will help pay the cost of the meetup or we'll cover that cost or we'll, you know, send swag there, send t-shirts and everything. Yeah. But no, for, for our ambassadors, we don't do any kind of um, extrinsic uh, financial reward directly today. And, and we don't have a plan to, we think, and we hope that we can give their personal development um, to give a lot of opportunities to their personal development that makes it worth, worth their while. And then um, that way we know it's, in a community sense, really striking the balance between like what we're offering and, and what we give back. Um, occasionally we'll do things like we give out a gift card or we give out um, prizes at a hackathon and, and things like that. We think that that's just a nice way to combine the intrinsic motivation in a community with a, a little, like a little bit special, like something special sometimes. Have you had to uh, deal with uh, Strifer? Um, forks, you know, say like something like Bitcoin, for instance, when a fork goes on, right, that can really um, fragment uh, and fork a community, you know, literally, quite literally. Um, have you had to deal with that at all? Um, you know, whether changing of, of features or um, whatever it may be that would uh, cause controversy or, or an uprising that you, know, that you have to deal with? Yeah, thankfully we haven't had any uprisings, yeah. which is uh, great. Knock <laughs> on wood, <laughs> knock on wood there. Um, but sure, there there is always tension. Um, there there there's always a possibility for tension, uh, especially in an API or a developer platform where 
the reality is one size does not always fit all. Mm -hmm. There are some use cases uh, where Algolia is perfect for that use case. There are other use cases where it is a bit more of a stretch. This is true for all developer platforms. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes when it's a stretch, um, when what the, like, let's say the type of data that the developer wants to search or the frequency they want to search it at or wh whatever it is that doesn't quite look like the profile that we're used to, there can be um, some uncertainty or some, some confusion there. And, and one thing the developer relations team tries to do in a case like that is to understand the situation that's happening and then try to recommend some kind of resolution between maybe our, uh, you know, our team uh, and the developer. So fi finding a middle ground. Um, now, uh, one thing that we do expect every developer advocate to do is be able to resolve those kind of situations or speak to them. So on our forum, you know, we, we have a forum that's purposely there for anybody to post to, anybody in our developer community who has a question, has a concern. We have a category called give feedback and we expect our community to be as candid as possible. Candor is one of our values as a company and our values extend into the community. So we want people to be candid. So of course, sometimes people will come in there and they'll express a deep satisfaction, unsatisfaction or dissatisfaction with uh, maybe something about the API, maybe something about pricing, maybe something about something else. And our job is to really understand that frustration, help communicate it back to the product team so that they understand what the sentiment is that's out there. And then if there's a way where we can still make that developer happy and still turn them into a champion, even though it's a difficult situation, then we'll try to do that. Nice. Any other items about uh, building communities that you would like to to drop into? No, I, I think we we covered a lot. You know, I think the important thing is to um, set the example and to give more than you receive, especially at first. Uh, yeah. I think a very common pitfall with communities is you wait for it to happen or you underinvest in the early stages. Uh, I'll give an example from Algolia. We set up a forum December 2016, about last year, and you know, probably 75% of the posts for the first two months were from us. And that's okay. Uh, it, if you want to build a community, you have to make a very strong gesture and a very strong amount of participation. Uh, for Keen IO's Google group, I think I wrote 400 posts. On Algolia's forum, I think I've written between 150 and 200 posts. And that, that's what you need to do to get a community off the ground. Um, you or your developer relations team or your developer community team, you know, don't be afraid if for the first year there's not a lot of activity that's not you. If you mm -hmm. keep doing it and you keep sticking with it, eventually the community will follow suit. Just make sure that you're giving them examples that you want to follow and, and the way that you're responding to things. So now, you know, it's uh, September of 2017, we have you know, between five and 10% of questions coming to our forum being answered by community members, where, where community members who are not part of the Algolia team, but part of the Algolia broader team, I would say, are actually stepping in and, and helping us there. And, and also if, we're, if you're a community builder trying to uh, explain the value of community to the executives inside of your company, it's a great thing to be able to say, we have less support to do because our community is actually doing a lot of that support for us. Um, so today we're at you know some percentage, but we want to get more and more. And even uh, we don't, and, and we wanna make sure that we're also rewarding the developers and incentivizing them. But we think there's a great synergy here because by becoming 
more, uh, let's say, prolific in the Algolia community, you know, we're hoping that that makes that developer more marketable, uh, builds their skills, gives them something they can talk about, um, helps them eventually become an ambassador. So we, you know, community building is all about trying to find that balance between if someone participates, do they feel like they're getting even more back from that participation? That's the critical point. Love it. Thank you, Josh. Give more than you receive, and then it turns out you get more back. That's right. Imagine that. Perfect. Imagine that. That's what makes communities go around, whether it's Burning Man or open source, or you know, if you're in developer relations with a, a dev community, that those things are tried and true. Perfect note to end the podcast. Thanks, Josh, for being here. Thanks, Adam, for having me. Are you uh, hiring uh, anybody at all? We are. Um, we are currently By hiring quite a few positions, <laughs> yeah. uh, developer relations, software engineering, design, uh, marketing, recruiting, sales. Uh, Algolia.com slash careers. I should be up to date with the list of everything we have going on. We, all, we have offices in Paris, San Francisco, New York City, Atlanta, and potentially a few more this year. Stay tuned. But definitely uh, algolia.com slash careers is a great place to look. Great. That'll all be in the uh, show notes and blog post along with the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay.